Welcome to the Medal of Honor podcast. This is Tiffany Marchink, your host. The Medal of Honor podcast is comprised of veteran stories of personal strength, courage, and perseverance. When looked up in Webster's Dictionary, the definition we find for medal with two T's is vigor and strength of spirit or temperament. Another definition in there says staying quality or stamina. It also says it's a quality of temperament or disposition. These are veterans who embody that. This is the podcast for veterans, and these are their stories. I joined the Army National Guard um, when I was 17 years old in 2005. So it was right before I graduated from high school um, at 17. And I joined because I knew I wanted to go to college and my family didn't have the funds to pay for me to go to school. And so at the time I was kind of racking my brain. I was a senior, you know, how am I going to make this happen? I was applying for a bunch of scholarships, all of that. And, um, you know, I am from North Dakota. And so we didn't have, you know, vast amounts of scholarship opportunities there, quite honestly. And it was kind of getting to the end towards graduation. I still had no idea. I knew I wanted to go to school. didn't know how I was going to make it happen. And a recruiter came to our high school and said, well, um, if you join the National Guard, you can go to school. We'll pay for it. So I said, yeah, definitely. Let's do that. And I, so I signed up, um, did the whole MAPS thing. I did what they called back then um, kind of a recruit holding where I actually went to my first semester of college and then went to basic training and um, advanced individual training. And so I went January of 2006. So at that point I went in um, and my job was in logistics. Um, so automated logistics and I didn't do my job much. Um, I will admit to that. Um, it was very shortly after I returned from uh, basic NAIT that I you know, went back to school for about a year and then got deployed to Iraq. So um, I went to Iraq 2007 to 2008. So I was 19 and turned 20 while I was overseas. Um, and while I was overseas, I did not do uh, my MOS or my job um, whatsoever. So during my deployment, I was um, kind of it snagged, if you will, from another unit to fill slots in the unit that deployed. So my actual unit didn't deploy, another one did, and um, they needed to fill slots. So I was first um, asked to volunteer, and then I was voluntold. And um, so went overseas with a, a unit where I didn't know anybody, and the slot they needed to have filled was to run the radio. So I was the radio operator for our command center um, in Iraq and you're outside of Baghdad. So I had the opportunity to not only do that. Um, so the 19 year old, um, really little girl at that point uh, running the radio for the command center. And then also um, I had the opportunity to go outside the wire and do um, patrols with our task force. Our task force was mostly made out of um, all male infantry units. And so I had the opportunity to go outside the wire with them on their patrols and certain missions to um, essentially be the, the cultural barrier for the, the males that needed to interact with uh, female local nationals. So I would be the one to interact with them, do pat downs, things like that, of course, 
um, while we were out with them um, because it is um, sort of, you know, uh, frowned upon or against their culture to have our, our male soldiers have hands-on like, like their female local nationals, which completely makes sense. Um, so with that kind of being that um, token female, if you will, to, to be there for, for the patrols. Um, since then, I have returned home and I've had a couple of different jobs. I've um, done some more in logistics. And then I also went back to school to become an engineer the Army Corps of Engineers doing survey and design, which was fun. And now today I am in the Idaho National Guard and most of what I do is satellite systems. So I'm in charge of the team and work with the team that um, sets up all of the satellites for the Idaho National Guard when, for example, we go out for training and things like that and you need to connect to the rest of the world. Um, that is, that's my job. For people who may have not spent any time in the military or maybe have not deployed can you explain what it means to go outside the wire oh yeah apologies i am attempting to keep the jargon down um so going quote unquote outside the wire means um going off base so when you deploy Commonly, there is um, a base or camp or a fort, uh, depending on how large and what kind of uh, what branch in the military, where you know you um, live, sleep, eat, all of that. And inside the wire, being that you know typically there's literally walls around it. So if you go to um, any of a base that's near you in your city or uh, in your state, it's typically completely surrounded by uh, fence or quote unquote wire walls of some sort. Um, so to go outside of that means to leave the comfort of um, and security of the base and um, you're, you know, fully um, geared up and, um, you know, locked and loaded as far as like your, your weapon is concerned and, and all of that. So basically going outside of the security of your base in order to interact and um, be in really in the, the country that you've deployed to. I want to backtrack on something else. Were you married? Yeah, so I was engaged when I left for Iraq, um, and that did not go well. Uh, um, so my uh, fiance decided to uh, find greener slash available pastures um, shortly after I left, which was understandable to some extent. I'm glad that we were not married, um, so I can be grateful for, for small favors. And um, so I was single and I did not have children, which is a huge distinction compared to a lot of the other women who I was deployed with, because uh, I was young, I was low ranking. Um, a lot of the other females that I was there were, were higher ranking and had children at home and families. Even my, um, I had a roommate and she had a two-year-old at home. And I have a two-year-old, I can't even imagine. Um, Someday I may have to imagine if I if I deploy again, um, but that that is a definite distinction between my experience and my deployment compared to others that were there with me. You were you said you were engaged before you deployed, and things didn't turn out um, as maybe had, you thought you had planned. But now you're married. So how long have you been married? Yeah, my husband is amazing. Um, his name is Peter, and. He and I have been together for um, a little over seven years. We've been married for six years. Um, and today we have a 
five-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, and he is 100% the, the reason why all of these things can happen. Um, he is my my supporter and my rock. And um, he's a, a stay-at-home daddy and runs his own company from our garage. He's a graphic design artist. Um, and so he does large um, scale printing. We literally have like massive, crazy giant printers in my garage. It's pretty insane. Um, and he worked for Anheuser-Busch as one of their senior graphic designers for like 15 years. So he's incredibly talented and I'm incredibly blessed. Shout out to spouses. That is great. Uh, to kind of close out this episode. And now, is there something that you wish I had asked you, or, uh, people knew about you or what you do, who is listening to this podcast? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so, Tiffany, I think that the, the one thing that I would mention that we, you know, we didn't dig into um, is you know, as you were looking at my story, as we're talking about where I am and where I've been for the last 15 years or so, um, I think the the two pieces that don't really typically get dug into very much is um, where I had come from. And so I came from um, a of an incredibly rough childhood of, um, you know, physical, sexual, and emotional abuse as I grew up. Um, and I think that it's important for others to, to hear that, um, to be empowered that you can break that chain and break that cycle. Um, for me, that meant joining the military and going to college. I did not know if that would be the answer, but I felt as, as, a, as a teenager that like that had to um, help if not, um, you know, be the answer to, to how to ensure that my children, um, that if I were to have children, that they did not grow up in the same way that I did, that, you know, foster homes, courthouses, and jail wasn't, and, you know, hospitals wasn't a part of their normal life. Um, so I, I think it's super important to, to mention that for anybody who may be listening, who maybe has a, a hard background or, you know, doesn't have all of the um, chips lined up for them already that um, there are things you can take into your own hands in order to ensure your own success. Um, and that where you're coming from, while certainly can have a strong impact, um, can be overcome. And then the other piece that's important is, you know, bringing that full circle, um, that continues to have an impact on me. And um, because of that, I, um, within the last couple of years, um, finally was able to identify that I have um, a substance abuse issue. And so I am an alcoholic and I'm an AA. Um, I am a year and some change sober. Um, and that's after, you know, going to the VA and asking for help. So there's many years of me attempting to get sober and not being able to. Um, and so you know, the struggle piece is also, I think, important to talk about because while it's exciting to talk about, you know, PhDs and, and the military deployments and, and all of the rosy, exciting, um, wonderful parts, the not so rosy and not so wonderful parts is, you know, that I did um, end up having significant impact to myself, even as I'm, you know, running with my arms flowing away from my background and away from my past. Um, so the way that I've addressed that today is by identifying that that is an issue for me um, and seeking help. Thank you for sharing that because that yeah, that is that is the purpose of this podcast. I think too many times people do not realize what's behind the uniform. They don't realize um, 
like you said, where you came from and uh, what experiences you had prior to the military in the military. Uh, people just say, okay, great, she deployed, that's awesome, that's great. But when you came home, did you come, come home with PTSD or a TBI or a missing limb or whatever else could have happened while deployed? Um, and, and even like you mentioned too, you went into the military because you recognized that there was something that had to give in your life. Something had to change. And that was your means of doing it. It was the best that you knew to do is to let me, let me, let me get out of town and see what I can do to, to make things different for me and potentially my future family. Hats off to you. Kudos to you. I think that's awesome. With that, I do want to ask something else. In light of that, you you said you went to the VA about the alcohol. How about the abuse that you experienced prior to joining the military? Did you ever seek out counseling for that to help manage it? And what kind of counseling did you get? How did that pan out for you? How did it help you? So um, when I was younger, I did um, receive some counseling here and there. Um, I believe a, a large chunk of it was was court mandated um, counseling based on certain trauma events um, and you know child services things of that accord. Um, so I have I have you know glimpses of memories of you know seeing different different therapists here and there, um, and then a, some additional therapy as I you know got into my my teenage years. Um, really though, like truly digging in didn't happen until um, well after I was out and back from my deployment. Um, so I, when I finally got to the point of um, being able to identify that I did have an alcohol problem, um, I did first seek um, help with my unit. So I, I went to my unit and said, you know, this is an issue. Um, I, haven't, I haven't killed anybody yet, but I, I, I will if I don't get help. And um, I was turned away. They, they told me that, um, you know, you have a PhD, you're an E6, you're successful, you have a family, um, go home. And um, so I did. <laughs> and I continued to struggle for um, two and a half more years. And today, I will say that the Idaho National Guard does have an actual substance abuse program. And if I stepped into those doors today and said the same thing, I would not get this, that response. I'm actually now a part of that task force um, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, Part of that, um, the um, substance abuse kind of team, right? So, um, in in the capacity that I can be. So, with that, um, I did go through um, the Boise Vet Center, and they're they're VA funded or VA associated, um, but thankfully, like in a distant sort of way. Um, I'm sure others probably know, like that have worked with the VA, um, similar type of situations. So this particular program allowed me to um, do the counseling that I needed for those original traumas. Um, so I had a very significant um, TBI as a, as, a young, um, as a young girl and then um, significant trauma events. So being able to unpack that and, and go through counseling um, that had, you know, the background of specifically being there for substance abuse um, with, with that kind of like backdrop, but being able to hit all of those points and get to the point of um, no longer holding resentments and, um, you know, the acceptance um, 
you know, and you can you can accept your your past without being um, happy about it, right? And so all of those pieces, and and without holding resentments um, towards it too, and growing um, real boundaries. And I think that that's you know, if I had to pick a thing that counseling and the other programs that I've done have allowed me to do, it's to to really identify um, and build legitimate boundaries for myself and for my family, um, which is what has really been um, the changing, the, the turning point for me. Um, the turning point for me has been being able to set boundaries with the people who have hurt me in the past. Um, and instead of perpetuating that, um, you know, that, that survivor syndrome, that um, trauma syndrome, right, uh, of continuing to come back and continuing to let it per perpetuate, um, so with that being said, um, I, as, as, you know, COVID hit, I stopped doing, um, the regular counseling that I was doing with the, the vet center program and dove deeper into, um, AA and, and those pieces is I felt like that was, um, being around other people that are like you is incredibly powerful. And while they may not have, um, you know, deployed to a war zone, um, they, they understand um, the struggles that I have on, on a different level that most people don't. Even a counselor doesn't truly appreciate. And I think that both, ha both have their places, right? So I think it was super important for me to go to a counselor to talk through my, my childhood and my deployment and all of the nitty gritty in between. Um, and today it's important for me to um, quote unquote be around. It's all virtual right now. Um, so, but be around those who, who are like me and, um, that's powerful for me. I want people to hear these things because, you know, somebody said to me, it is an elite fighting force. And that force is the teamwork and camaraderie of people working in their area of expertise to make something happen to the other person's credit this fighting force that you look at is made up of people it's not made up of robots we are actually legitimately people so my hope is in doing these podcasts that we can humanize the uniform you know that that it's not just it's not just a uniform you put it on and all of a sudden i'm a super trooper no i'm a person um and and so i am glad that you you shared that i really am and that's why i'm gonna have to start getting a box of tissues and putting them by my <laughs> microphone or something <laughs> um i really appreciate it i really do i, I think it's all awesome. you know I, I had some similarities prior to joining the military but towards the end of my career in the military i was victim of a military sexual assault um and so i had that military sexual trauma and um Oh my gosh, I did not know it was possible to feel that many emotions that were like con contradicting each other all at the same time. I asked that question of, is there anything that you want to share that I didn't ask you or, or touch on? And I'm glad that you went for it. I, I really am. Um, it's great. It's so th so then I'm having this anger towards myself and towards the other person as well as shame and guilt and condemning myself and embarrassed and 
it took me a while to go ask for help. But I found myself, go, you know, just getting, cr going crazy. And thought, if I don't ask for help, something's not going to come out that is just not going to be pretty. It's going to be ugly. So, yeah. And I think that's, I really, you know, think it's key for people to go and ask for the help that they need. Yeah, sure, you might be embarrassed. It, you might feel shame. You might feel whatever on those, uh, like, plethora of emotions that a person can feel. No matter what it is that you feel, you still need help. Um, and if, if what you're experiencing is legitimately your fault, so what? Get the help that you need to overcome it. If what you're experiencing is not your fault or you played maybe a piece in it, who cares? Just get the help so that it's not gonna, you're not gonna wear it as your identity of, oh, I'm an alcoholic or I'm, you know, I'm a drug addict, I'm a sex addict, I'm a whatever, or I am a, I am depressed, I am a depressed person or an anxious person. No, these things, kind of like what you mentioned to earlier when you talked about uh, pre-military life, these things are not your identity. They're just pieces of the puzzle that make up who you are. And when I say make up who you are, I don't mean uh, it makes up who I am. Like, oh, I'm a victim now. No, you were victimized, but you're a survivor. So, yeah, that's awesome. I appreciate I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, I think that, you know, the the conversation that you had where you mentioned, you know, the military being a force and, you know, this is this formidable force, which most definitely it is. But the other, you know, certainly the, the civilian um, ideology of that, and, um, you know, feeds into then our own perception of what we're supposed to be, right? This perception of like, yeah, I'm a part of this formidable force. So that means that, um, you know, there, I can't have those emotions and I, and I, there is nothing wrong with me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a soldier and that, that's all that matters um, because that's the perception and that's, you know, the, the untrue reality that we create for ourselves, right? Um, so then people in the military that may need assistance and may need help don't reach out for it because they're supposed to be, you know, something that um, really no one really is, right? No one is without flaw. No one was without some sort of um, past emotion, you know, issues of their own, which is completely understandable. So I 100% agree. Your gender was used to the advantage of the mission, which was a good thing because the military is a male-dominated, a male-dominated organization, and especially in the arena where you're dealing with infantry, where females are definitely few and far between. What was it like? Like, wh when did it register to you if if it was? while you were deployed or even afterwards, when did it register that you were being used, you were connecting the culture where you were deployed to, to your, your uh, co-workers, the infantry? And, and how did you process all that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say that 
it wasn't until I returned home that it really, um, that the full impact of that um, hit me and, and exactly what it was that I had done and um, the, the role that my gender played in my deployment. Um, in that, like in, during that time, I was just doing my job. So I was just doing what I was, I needed to do. They had asked for volunteers. So um, to, to do those types of missions. Um, and, but in our group or in our task force, we had, you know, upwards of 500 to 600 soldiers and 28 of them were females. And so when they said we need females to do um, this type of mission, it made sense for me to say like, yeah, I, I want to do that. I volunteer to do that. Um, and it never really hit me that like that, that how important that was and or like really the implications of that until I returned home. And it was when I returned home and um, the conversation started swinging towards um, the, the desire and the policy changes for women to be allowed in the infantry and women to be allowed in combat. And um, I definitely think that other women listening to this that maybe have similar experiences to me, because there's lots of us, um, maybe kind of giggled at that. We were like, oh, oh, cute. We're gonna let us do the thing that we've been doing for five plus or more years, right? Um, even women who have um, been a part of war way before Operation Iraqi Freedom, right? So you have um, policymakers and Congress and Senate and um, so many high up um, individuals saying, yeah, this is what we're gonna fight for. And definitely like that is something that needs to be fought for. It should make it official, but for the conversation to be around it, um, it wasn't a conversation, it felt at least to me, like it wasn't a conversation necessarily around it um, being an official policy and less so being an, in existence. And for women like myself that I've spoken to, uh, it was mostly funny because we were like, this is our, it already in existence. And it wasn't until those conversations that um, I kind of looked back and was like, actually, I already did that. I was 19 years old and I, that's, I was already a woman in combat. I was already, that already happened um, many years ago. So um, that being said, 100% uh, appreciated that that had finally come to fruition and love, absolutely love seeing um, the women who are now officially for real a part of those units and um, that, 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 is, that is a policy change. Yeah, so uh, that's a really great question. And I do get that a lot. I get um, one that my, um, my job in the military has literally nothing to do with my job as a civilian. And two, um, the other surprise that usually gets brought up is that I'm not an officer. So I'm an enlisted soldier still. Um, so the, the interesting piece is that, you know, because I've been in for 15 years, right? I'm, I'm gonna come up on, on 16 years here pretty soon. Um, you know, the military was first. So in high school, I knew that, you know, biology was the thing I was really interested in. I loved science. But like you said, when you go to join the military, um, it's, they have a list and they have, for the guard, they have a list of like what's available near you too. So I knew where I was going to go to college and um, I knew what town. And so I was like, what jobs do you have in this town? And um, the list of jobs that they had in that town for a female, which is funny, full circle, um, was one. There was a job for a female in the military at, in that town because it was a, a combat engineering unit that happened to be in that city. Um, and you cannot have a vagina and be a combat engineer uh, back in 2005. 
So I chose to do the logistical job um, because it was either that or I think there was one other, um, like a, a different supply position potentially available. So um, you chose really, especially when you're talking reserve and guard, like I chose based on location um, and said like, I'll just learn whatever it is that you know is available. So um, that could have been anything, quite honestly, at 17 years old, they could have been like, you're going to be a cook. Cool. Sounds good. Um, and would have done that. They could have told me I was going to be a combat engineer. I totally would have done that too, um, if they would have allowed it. So um, that's how it started. That's how like I started in quartermaster, which is the logistics side. And then my, you know, the, the kind of interweaving, if you will, of my military career and my civilian career, right? So starting college, going to basic, going back to college, going to Iraq, going back to college, um, and eventually getting to the point of, um, you know, earning my PhD in cellular molecular biology. And the piece that the military plays into that, specifically my PhD, is that while I was deployed, um, I was incredibly struck by how amazingly blessed I was to have been born in the United States of America. Um, to even, even considering the things that I couldn't have done, back, at least back then as a female in the military, um, the, the opportunities afforded to me as a United States citizen um, were abound, right? Like I could come home from Iraq after, you know, doing shakedowns of, of female local nationals in a third world country, knowing that their, the cards that they were dealt were much different than mine. And so when I got back from Iraq, um, I went from, you know, yeah, maybe I'm gonna get a bachelor's in biology, we'll see what happens, meh, to like, no, I'm going to take full advantage of um, this opportunity that I have that other people don't get. Um, so really like kind of growing up um, in Iraq and saying, okay, yeah, I'm gonna take this all the way. Um, and for me, I then had applied shortly after returning from Iraq, I. Um, applied for a position in a cancer research lab as an undergraduate, and I loved it. I fell in love and um, knew I wanted to get an advanced degree, and so um, decided that I was going to continue my cancer research um, background and get a PhD um, with cancer research as like the main focus of my dissertation, which is exactly what I did. Um, so I went to finish my PhD in, or excuse me, finish my bachelor's degree in North Dakota, and then continued on to the University of South Florida, where um, I got my cellular molecular biology PhD and specialized in ovarian cancer. So um, ovarian cancer runs in my family. And so it's uh, near and dear to my heart and, and my ovaries. And um, so I decided that um, I wanted to research in that. I found a lab and I my dissertation and all my research in that time was on how to manipulate proteins to make um, ovarian cancer patients resusceptible to chemotherapy. So basically like after you have chemotherapy, if you have ovarian cancer again, it's likely you won't be able to receive the same drug that you did the first time. So how can we make that a possibility for a patient? Pretty cool job. Um, but in the midst of that, like I still had the military. I was still in the National Guard. Um, so I was in the Florida Guard, I was in the North Dakota Guard. Um, and so I was running these two interesting paths of like, yeah, I finished my bachelor's degree, but I went directly into a PhD program. And in order for you to switch from an enlisted to an officer, I needed to go to officer candidate school. And I needed to spend 
four months of active duty time at a basic officer leadership course. And quite frankly, I didn't have the time um, to do that. You, you can't just typically, unless you have to deploy, you know, on your own decide, oh, I'm just going to take all this time off of school to, to go become an officer. And um, then fast forward to, so, so I did go to school to become an engineer um, as I was finishing my bachelor's degree. So I did have that kind of shift in, in job um, with the hopes of being able to climb the enlisted ladder a little faster. Um, and then once I had my PhD, um, because I am not an MD or a nurse, I cannot direct commission. Even with a PhD, um, you have to do the same shenanigans that everybody else does. Um, go pretend like you haven't been in the army for 15 years and go be a grunt and get yelled at again. And, um, go spend four months at basic officer leadership course. And that's just not where I'm at right now. Um, I am content with my, my career. I'm, I'm an E6 and maybe one of the highest educa educated uh, E6s you'll meet. And I'm okay with that. That says a lot about you as a person. You just kept on going from bachelor's to master's to PhD. You're an E6. Before we, yeah, before we talked... I thought for sure I was going to be talking to an officer. I think that says a lot about you and your character. I, I really do. Because it's two different lives that you have kind of going parallel to each other. After I graduated with my PhD, I um, moved to Idaho with my family. So by then, um, I had uh, one daughter. And so my husband and my daughter um, moved across the country to Idaho. And I took a job as the director of R&D at a biotech startup here in um, Boise. And so it was like the, the job dream come true, um, like the, the heavens shine down and on. Oh, I was running um, a lab department that had three other PhDs in it and we were doing stem cell cancer research and I was in heaven. Unfortunately, we, um, I ended up leaving that position after, so I had gotten pregnant um, with our second daughter, you know, who's now two. And um, my, in the, mid, in the midst of my research, um, there were some um, purposeful miscommunication that occurred um, that led to questions as to whether or not my child would be safe. My, my unborn child would be safe because we were dealing with tissues that may or may not have Zika, which at the time Zika was the the thing um, a few years ago. And so we were working with tissues that may or that did end up having Zika and um, I, it put me at risk and it put my, my child at risk. And um, due to the kind of interactions that I had uh, with leadership at, the, at that company, I decided that it was best for me to, to move on. Um, and that was incredibly hard because probably not surprising to you, uh, Boise, Idaho is not a biotech mecca. Um, and so finding a job for myself after that, while being, you know, um, what felt like a million months pregnant was, was not an easy task. And, um, so I ended up applying for lots of jobs, but one of the jobs that I had received was, um, a job working for Dairy Gold and Dairy Gold is a dairy processing facility, um, out of the Pacific Northwest. And they have a processing facility in Boise, Idaho. So I had applied to run their lab and, um, 
I was just as overqualified as I was underqualified. I was overeducated and underqualified, I think is the best way to put it. Um, I had a PhD in cellular molecular biology and zero food manufacturing experience. And I was like, just please, you know, take a chance on me. Oh, and also real sorry, I'm gonna leave for at least, you know, a handful of weeks when I go have this human um, that I'm incubating. And um, so they took a chance on me and accepted me into the position. And I um, moved up in that company to the quality manager running um, two different departments there. And what was interesting is that I had my, old, my youngest daughter then. Um, and to back up just a little, when I had my, my oldest, my oldest had severe food allergies and reacted to proteins transferred from my breast milk to, or excuse me, from my diet to my breast milk. And um, so with her, we ended up going on a strict elimination diet and um, I was able to successfully breastfeed her for a year. Well, now I'm working for a dairy processing facility. I have my youngest daughter and she has the same exact problem. She also has severe food allergies. So in all of the irony in the world, I was making millions of pounds of the food that I could not consume um, because of her food allergies. And I learned that the food manufacturing industries can test for cross contact of um, different food allergens. So literally, it, let's say like in, in the facility on the same piece of equipment, if you run soy milk and then you run cow's milk, you have to be able to prove to the FDA that you didn't accidentally cross contact those things. And so I was teaching lab techs how to do those tests, do those analysis and um, had a moment of, holy crap, what if I just like snuck into the closet and squirted some breast milk on this thing? Um, so it's a little bit more complicated than that, but um, since then I have started the company Free to Feed. So I am a, the founder and CEO of a biotech startup. Um, Free to Feed is creating a test strip to allow moms to test their breast milk for the presence of allergens at home, um, which is another kind of piece of my story, piece of my journey and my children's journey. Um, I also breastfed my second daughter until she, around, around one when I ended up going to military duty. Um, and um, she, she weaned at that point. And so I currently uh, work out of rented space at Boise State University, in addition to partnering with another lab that is up north at the University of Idaho. Um, and we do breast milk research. So we're studying, uh, we're literally just kicked off um, a big study where we are doing dosing of cow's milk and soy to mommies who are lactating to see um, the timeline for when those proteins um, enter the breast milk, when they exit and validate a, a testing mechanism for these mommies that are in the middle of food allergies. Um, so kind of an interesting um, turn, the, the um, interesting piece of it is that my background, um, my, my dissertation was all about proteins, right? So I'm, I'm a protein expert. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to needing to know a lot about proteins um, to breastfeed my children. Um, and today, Free to Feed um, offers one-on-one -on -one mommy consults. We offer um, master classes for lactation professionals and mommies and pushing forward to products to help mom so yeah, I think that's great. And I, I really appreciate, as I say, um, you know, I've done a number of different podcasts and um, I have to say, I really appreciate your, your thoughtful and very insightful questions. Um, so that is super, super appreciated. So, um, you know, my experience is that um, it's 
it's not super common that as I'm talking to individuals that we can really like dig into really important issues. Um, and you did an amazing job doing it. Well, Tiffany, I super appreciate it. I have to jump off for my next thing. Um, oh, sorry. So, no, 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 you're good, you're good. Um, I appreciate you and uh, keep, me, keep me in touch as you push forward.